I want to read something over you. And I would ask you, if you would, just close your eyes and let, let your mind revel in the beauty of God's word. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him to understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it. And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. And he seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It is he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? Who brings out their host by number, calling them by name? by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, that my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But those who wait upon the Lord, who wait for the Lord, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. O oh Lord, the everlasting God, would you remind us again this morning of how great you are, that we might again, or maybe some of us for the first time, cast our hope fully upon you because you care for us. I ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can take a seat. Well, good morning. My name is Christian. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. I get the opportunity to open God's word for you this morning. And if, if you've been around Cornerstone for a, lot, for a few years, you know that we've developed a tradition of spending the summer months going through an Old Testament book. Over the last few years, we've done books like Jonah or Ruth or Daniel. 
But what we're going to do over these next few months is we wanted to tackle a, a bigger Old Testament book. Perhaps you know where that passage comes from that I just read. It comes from Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to tackle the book of Isaiah, and it is a much bigger book. So we're not going to wait for the start of summer. We're going to get started with that this morning. From what you heard in that, man, Isaiah, I would say, is the most beautiful and perhaps the most complex of the Old Testament prophets. It is a book that over and over again shows us a vision of God in his almighty, sovereign control of all things, that he is utterly unique and utterly dependable, and then repeatedly calls us to depend upon him, to trust him, because God always always keeps his promises. And spoiler alert, many of those promises find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ and in the events that we are getting ready to celebrate in the next few weeks in his death and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father. So what I want to do this morning is I'm actually going to try to accomplish two things this morning. I want to both set the stage for our summer series in the book of Isaiah that's going to begin right after Easter but then also set the stage for our celebration of the events of the Passion Week, Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And I want to try to do both of those this morning. So if you will, picture this morning like, like we're all planning to go on a big, long backpacking journey hike. Some of you guys are dreading that I just said that. Some of you guys are going, I've been dying to do that. But either way, I've only been back, baptizing, backpacking once or twice. But I know beforehand, you sit together and you go over the trail and you figure out on the map where you're going to go. And one of the most fun parts is you Google or you do a search for who's done it and posted pictures of it beforehand. So you see the beautiful vistas, you see the waterfalls and all the cool stuff you're going to go see. So you know why you want to sleep out of doors and not shower for an extended period of time, right? You know why it's worth it to go on this journey. And that's what I want to do this morning. We're going to Read a lot more from the book of Isaiah this morning. As a matter of fact, in a few minutes, I'm going to have my wife come up and read so you're not just hearing from me. But before we do that, I think it's helpful to give you a couple, to, to, to map this out, to, to give you a couple of hooks to hang our understanding of the book of Isaiah on. Now, the book of Isaiah can pretty neatly be separated into two sections. Chapters 1 through 39 is kind of the first section, and chapters 40 through 66 is the second section. In that first section, chapters 1 through 39, it's largely addressing the people and the situations that were going on in Isaiah's day. In the very first verse of Isaiah, it says this. It says, this is the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So we know he's talking to Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. And we know that he's speaking from the time that King Uzziah was on the throne till King Hezekiah. And we can pretty much get some pretty good dates of that. We know that Uzziah died about 740, and we know that Hezekiah died about 690. So that means that Isaiah had about a 50-year prophetic ministry. And in these first 39 chapters, the majority of what Isaiah is saying has to do with stuff going on in that time period. The major theme of this first part of Isaiah is judgment. There's no way around that. As you read through this book, you find that there is a lot of anger that God has toward the people based upon stemming from their disobedience of him. 
him. And he makes very clear, there is judgment. There is punishment. There is destruction on the horizon for you. But even though there's such a heavy note of judgment, weaved through this first section are repeated calls for hope. That even though God will punish His people, He's not done with them. He will restore. So again, the the first section, Isaiah's day, speaking to what's going on during his lifetime. Judgment, but hope at the same time. When we move into chapter 40, there is a very decided shift in the tone and the focus of the book. Look at the way he starts out this second section. From calls upon calls of judgment, he says this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. From talking so much about judgment, now it's almost as though Isaiah is speaking to a group of people who've already received that judgment. They've already suffered the experience of the punishment that God said he would bring in the first half of the book. It's as though he's talking to a group of people, maybe even 200 years later, who've received the judgment of the first half of the book. And he's saying to them, now, all that stuff I said about hope, it's time for that. But along the way, there's still the, but if you rebel and turn away from the Lord again, there is still the warning of judgment for those who refuse to follow God. Now, this, it's, it's a shift in tone, and it's almost like a time warp in the middle of the book where Isaiah spends the first 39 chapters talking to the people of his day, and then all of a sudden like that, he's talking to people 200 years into the future? And so this has led many scholars over the last 200 years to ask the question, could the same guy who wrote chapters 1 through 39 possibly have written 40 through 66? As a matter of fact, this has been a huge debate and controversy in the field of Old Testament studies, and it's probably more nerdy than is helpful to get into this morning. But I will just say this. There is no reason, their their thought would be that maybe later scholars or later Jewish uh, 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 prophets read what Isaiah said in chapters 1 through 39 and went, well, shoot, let's just carry that logic on and apply it to new situations in our day. So it would be more a, a school or a group of authors that put this book together. And there's no reason to say that the Holy Spirit could not have guided multiple authors to put together this book in a way that is composite but unified, because that's what the Holy Spirit has done with the entire Bible. At the same time, though, if the Holy Spirit is able to do that, he is also just as able to use one man to speak both to the situation in his day and to what would come in the future. So some of you are familiar with this controversy or not. I just want you to know off the front end that as we go through the book of Isaiah, we will be teaching this as the work of one author, this same Isaiah son of Amos, who God used both to speak to what was coming in the near future and the farther future. And we'll see in the last 10 chapters of the book, the ultimate future, when the fullness of God's kingdom would come. So if you're someone here who you hold that there was probably more like multiple authors of the book of Isaiah, it's not like we're going to kick you out or anything, but just want you to know at the front and the perspective from which we're teaching the book. Now, as we go through this book over the next couple of months, there's 66 chapters and we're going to spend about 20 weeks in this book, which means we're not going to be able to unleash, unleash God's truth one verse at a time. We're going to have to take larger chunks. And the way we're going to do it is we're going to kind of look at the major themes of the book and probably spend about two to three weeks at a time tracing those major themes. 
So if you will, it's going to be a bit of a collection of mini-series on the themes in the book of Isaiah. And I know it's, it's, it's early April, and I'm already talking about summer, and I know that comes summertime, oftentimes we get all over the place. We're coming, we're going, we're going on trips, and sometimes that's, that's actually a, a, a joyful thing, a part of summer, is that we can break up our normal rhythms and go on trips and visit family and things like that, which is a really cool thing. But I would just say this. I'm going to ask you to do two things as we begin this series. Number one, I'm going to ask you this. The, over the course of these next few months, if, you're in, if it's Sunday and you're in town and you're not sick, be here. Be a part of this with us. The book of Hebrews chapter 10 encourages us not to forsake meeting together regularly, as some are in the habit of doing, but to encourage one another more and more. So this is my encouragement to you. Don't forsake being together with us. We have the sermons posted within a couple of days on our website. So even if you are gone, you can stay catched up, caught up. There we go, caught up. The other thing I want to encourage you to do is this. Commit to read through the book of Isaiah at least a couple of times over the course of this summer. There's 66 chapters, which means if you average two chapters a day, you'll get through it in about a month. If you average three chapters a day, you'll get through it in about three weeks. And in doing that, you will catch the broad, overarching, just majestic themes of this book. And you'll also be able to pick up on the main themes that we're hitting on as we go through this series. Does that make sense? So that's what we're going to be doing over the next couple of months. But I also mentioned that, that my, my hope this morning was to also set the stage for our celebration of the Passion Week, for Palm Sunday next Sunday, for, for Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So how does a book that was written back 700 years before the birth of Christ, 2,700 years from our time, how does that help us prepare for the celebration of Easter? I'm glad you asked. I'm glad I asked, at least. The book of Isaiah helps us celebrate the work of Jesus Christ in two very cool, but very different ways in these two halves of the book. We're going to listen to several passages, and I mentioned I'm going to invite my wife Jennifer to come up, because she's going to help me as we read through these things. She's going to read some of these passages, and I will offer some commentary along the way. But understand this, I'm not going to put these verses up on the screen, because this book of Isaiah like all of the Old Testament and the New Testament, was designed by God to be heard within a cultural setting in which most people didn't have copies of books, nor could they read. And so in that way, as we hear these passages together, I'm going to put the references up on the screen so that those of you who like to take notes can keep track of where we're going. But this is going to be an exercise for us in listening to God's word as we go through this. Now, before, thank you, Jen, for being here. Thanks, I'm glad to have you up here with me. Before we get into the first one, in the first half of this book, in chapters 1 through 39, as I mentioned, the main theme is judgment, but there's hope throughout. And especially in the first half of the book, the repeated beat that God keeps hitting of the nature of that hope has to do with a king that God has promised to send to his people. A king who won't just be another king in the long line of kings that they've had, but a different kind of king. The first place we hear about this promised future king is in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government 
and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Did you catch as we listen to that, that this, again, is not just the promise of another king, but of a fundamentally different kind of king, a better king even than David, who throughout the Old Testament is the epitome of the good king. The amazing thing about this king is that he will establish his kingdom not through some power play, not through a coup, not through manipulation, but it says he will establish his kingdom in justice and righteousness. It's the promise that his government will bring peace. Not only that, it says of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Never-ending, increasing peace in the kingdom of this king. Not only will the peace not end, his kingship will not end. He will be king forever. We get another description of what this king will be like two chapters later in Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now stop there for one second. In case you're unfamiliar, the name Jesse that's used here is talking about the father of David. Jesse was David's father, so that's how we know that Isaiah 11 is still talking about this promised king from the line of David. But he also talks about it as the stump of Jesse, Using the metaphor of a tree to describe the kingly line of David, he says this tree is going to get chopped down and there will only be a stump. That for a time there will be no king on the throne of David. But in this prophecy, God is making sure his people understand he has not forgiven, forgotten the promise that he made to David back, back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that the house and line of David would be established as king over his people forever. And so he says, though this kingly line will be cut off, though it will be a stump, though there will come an end to the line of David, it will not be a permanent end. But it says a shoot will spring up from that stump. New life will come out of that long, seemingly dead line of kings. And there will be another king. But again, not just another king, a different kind of king. Look at how, listen to how he describes what this king will be like in Isaiah 11. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So here's what struck me as I was looking at this passage this week. This king that's promised to God's people will be more than just a warrior to fight their battles. He will be more than just a rescuer to take them out of hard situations. He will be a ruler. He will preside over a kingdom, a society of day-to-day -day living with his people that will be defined by justice and equity and fairness. Many of us grew up at school starting our day by saying the Pledge of Allegiance, right? And that Pledge of Allegiance 
ends with the, the, the ideal, the aspiration that this nation of the United States of America would have liberty and justice for all. And as good of an ideal as that is, it has only ever been an aspiration for this country. But this king, the Isaiah 11 king, will actually bring liberty and justice for all. It will be a reality. And not, get this, not just for human society. Listen to what he goes on to say in Isaiah 11. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Do you hear that? This king's kingdom will bring about the renewal of creation itself. Like in the descriptions here, you have the most ferocious animals and the most vulnerable toddlers living and playing together in peace. Like it's hard to even imagine that. But the thing is, when this king comes, we won't have to imagine it. It will be a reality. Now, in these two glorious promises of this king from the line of David in Isaiah 9 and 11, something strange happens when we move into the second half of the book, chapters 40 through 66. We don't hear anymore about this king from the line of David. Instead, we begin to hear about one who is called the servant of the Lord. And his role seems very different from what we just read about with the king in chapters 9 and 11. We first encounter this idea of the servant of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 41, referring to the nation of Israel as a whole. Listen to this. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold you with my righteous hand. The next chapter in Isaiah 42, having identified Israel, the nation of Israel as, as his servant, God then speaks about the mission, the purpose for which he made Israel his servant. Listen to this. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, 
who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. God had called the nation of Israel as his servant to live in faithful obedience to his law. Because in doing that, in living rightly under God as king, they would display God's justice and righteousness to the nations. They would be a light to the nations. As he says there at the end, that it would be like a blind man being given back his sight. That's the way that Israel's life as a nation was meant to portray to the nations around them. But sadly, as we know from the biblical story, the nation of Israel fell short of that glorious purpose. They did not bring justice and light to the nations. Listen to what God says just a few verses later about them. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunders? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose laws they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, and he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Again, this verse repeats that Israel was supposed to give light to the nations. They were supposed to remove the blindness from the other nations, to bring them to see and know God through their life. But yet, what we see is that Israel proved to be just as blind as the nations, just as hardened in heart as the nations. Even when God punished them, it says at the end, they still did not take it to heart. So a few chapters later, God begins to speak differently about this servant. No longer in reference to the nation as a whole, but to a specific person, an individual man who would take up and take on the mission of Israel to be a light to the nations. The mission that Israel had failed to accomplish. Listen to this. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right hand is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. 
And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. Okay, pause there for one second. Now, get this. We know that the shift has happened from talking about the nation of a whole as God's servant to talking about a specific person because right there in verse 5, it says the, the purpose, the mission of this person being the servant of the Lord is to bring the nation back. It's not the nation's job to bring the nations back. It's the job of this servant to bring the nations back. But at the same time, God says he has something even bigger than just the restoration of Israel in mind for this servant. Listen to this. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Do you hear that? Not only will this servant raise up the tribes of Jacob. God, God says that's too light a thing. I have a much bigger plan in mind than just that. This servant would succeed in being the light to the nations that Israel was intended to be. He will succeed in extending God's salvation to the ends of the earth. But there's a twist in there. Did you hear it? This servant will be a light to the nations, but only after he has been deeply despised and abhorred by the nation of Israel. How does that work? How can this servant's rejection by the nation of Israel ultimately lead to the redemption of Israel and the nations? That's where the last of Isaiah's servant songs sheds the most light. Listen to this. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Yet he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The Lord, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Amen. Thank you so much, Jen. Appreciate it. Thank you. Guess thank my wife for, for reading with us. That last passage she read was probably familiar to many of you. You probably heard it and went, oh yeah, that's the Good Friday passage. That's the one that we read from Isaiah 53 that talks about how Jesus died to pay for our sins. And yes, it does. But, but get this. That passage, with all of its detail, was written 700 years, around 700 years before Jesus was born. You see, here's what I want to do. In some ways, this may be the, the, the most obvious reveal to many of you. Yeah, we get it. Jesus is the king from the line of David, and he's the suffering servant from Isaiah as well. That's why at Christmas time we read Isaiah 9 and we sing, For unto us a child is born, right? Because we believe rightly that the promise in Isaiah 9 is fulfilled by Jesus. He is the one who was born to be the promised king from the line of David. And then on Good Friday, we read from Isaiah 53 that Jesus was pierced for our transgression, that he was crushed for our iniquities. Because again, we believe rightly that Jesus also is that suffering servant that Isaiah promised. The one who died to bring us peace with God. But here's what I want to do. Sometimes I fear that our familiarity with these truths can somehow numb us to the, to the reality of just how earth-shattering this was when God's people first realized this. Did you know that before the time of Jesus, as far as we can tell from the writings that we found, not a single Jewish scribe or rabbi ever looked at the book of Isaiah and said, you know what, that, that promised king from the line of David in the first half and that suffering servant in the second half, I think that's talking about the same person. Not once. It was just too outside the box of what they thought the Messiah would come and do. On the one hand, you have a king who brings justice to the world and a servant who suffers unjustly. How can that be talking about the same person? Even during Jesus' own ministry, even as he's healing and preaching and teaching and casting out demons, and his own disciples are confessing to him their belief that he is Israel's Messiah, that he is the promised king from the line of David. Jesus begins to tell them repeatedly, okay, you're right, but I'm going to suffer many things and be killed, and three days later I will rise again. And over and over again, even as Jesus is saying it clearly to them, it says they could not understand what he was saying. This was the squarest peg in the roundest hole. It just could not fit with what they thought the Messiah would come to do. Perhaps the scene that paints this most clearly for us is the one that Chris will walk us through next Sunday. The triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. 
When Jesus' followers are waving palm branches and putting their garments down on the road and welcoming and praising Jesus, welcoming him into the city of Jerusalem as a king. They're even shouting out, Hosanna! Oh, save us! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed even is the coming kingdom of our father David. In other words, they're saying, Jesus, we believe that you are the promised king from the line of David from Isaiah 9 and 11. But what is Jesus doing while all that celebration is going on? In Luke, it tells us that he's weeping over the city. Luke 19, he says this, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Israel, God's servant, was still blind to the fact that Jesus, God's servant, was there not to be welcomed as king, but ultimately to be abhorred and despised by the nation, just as Isaiah 49 said. So that the things that make for peace that Jesus is talking about is what Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, that through his chastisement, through his punishment, we might have peace. And understand this, no one saw this coming. No one saw that the promised king of Isaiah, the first part of Isaiah, and the suffering servant of the second part would be fulfilled in one and the same person. That mystery remained veiled and hidden until after Jesus rose from the dead. When Luke 24 says that Jesus opened his disciples' minds to understand the scriptures, and then it was like the end of one of those great mystery novels. You know, when, when everything is revealed and suddenly you realize that the clues were right there in plain sight all along and you never saw it. You know that feeling? One of my favorite movies growing up, it's like a defining movie of our generation, my generation anyways, is The Sandlot. Oh, I loved that movie. And seriously, weeks ago as I was starting to prepare for this, there was one scene that was in my mind. It's the scene when Scotty Smalls finally realizes that the ball that he swiped from his dad's office, that he thinks is just signed by some lady named Baby Ruth, is actually signed by the Sultan of Swat, the Colossus of Clout, the great Bambino, the greatest baseball player that ever lived. And his, his classic scene where he puts his hands on his head and he goes, oh my gosh, you mean that's the same guy? That's what it was like for the apostles in that first generation. The promised king from the first part of Isaiah. The suffering servant from the second part. You mean that's the same guy? Jesus Christ, the one we followed, does both of those things? They never saw it coming, but it was right there the whole time. And finally, the great mystery of the gospel was revealed. That's why I titled this message, Jesus is the king who is also the servant. He is the servant who is also the king. This was foretold hundreds of years before in such stark detail. So here's what I would say to you. Over the next two Sundays, as we prepare to celebrate the Passion Week, I want to challenge you to strive for that sense of wonder and amazement at just how big Jesus is. Let's worship him for it. The book we just finished, 2 Corinthians, 
In chapter 1, verse 20, Paul makes the statement that is so much bigger than we think. He says that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Even the ones that seem completely incompatible with each other. Like the king and the servant of Isaiah. This is why Jesus is so utterly unique. This is why there is no other way to peace with God than through him. As we carry this message of hope in Jesus, we need to be gracious and respectful, but we can never cave on the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. That he alone is the Savior. He alone is the only hope for rescue from sin and death. That he is the only hope for lasting peace and justice and renewal in our world. Now, understand this. Jesus has already fulfilled, as we look at these two promises of the king and the servant, Jesus has already fulfilled most of what was prophesied about the servant, especially through his death and resurrection. That's why Good Friday and Easter are such gigantic deals for those of us that follow Jesus. And while we know from the New Testament that after being raised from the dead, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and has already been enthroned as King of kings and Lord of lords, yet we know that we have not yet seen or experienced the fullness of that kingdom. But one day we will. As we prepare to celebrate Passion Week, as a church, remember this. As followers of Jesus, we always celebrate by looking back and by looking forward. We celebrate by looking back at all that Jesus has already done for us. And at the same time, we celebrate in joyous anticipation of all that is yet to come. Our King is coming again. He will bring that lasting peace that was promised. If you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus. Man, I would encourage you, Keep coming these next couple of weeks. We're going to talk a lot more about why Jesus is so absolutely important to us. All our hope rests on him. If you are a follower of Jesus, I know some of you may come from a Jewish background. And so much of what we talked about this morning is talking about not only God's purpose for Israel and Israel's failure to meet that purpose and Jesus being the one who fulfills that purpose, but what we see so clearly throughout the book of Isaiah is that God is not done with the people of Israel. He will one day restore and gather them to him in Jesus Christ. That is good news. If you're a, a Jewish follower of Jesus, take hope in that. There is hope for your people. Just as that hope, if you're a follower of Jesus, has already been realized in your life. If you're like me, someone who comes from a Gentile background, understand this. Never forget this, guys. We are part of a story that has been going on for thousands of years. It is the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is the story of God's purpose and intention to create a people for himself so that he might live in relationship with them and make himself known on earth through them. And through Jesus Christ, you and I have been drawn up into that story. As we spend the next few months going through the book of Isaiah, my prayer for us as a church is that in so doing, we would come to know this story better and love it more and especially live our part in this story 
more faithfully because of it. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus Christ, we exalt you as the one who draws together the promises of God in yourself. You are the king from the line of David. You are the suffering servant who brings us peace with God. You are the one who is a light to the nations. And even now that we're sitting here on seriously, like the complete opposite side of the globe from where you were when you were on this earth. Man, we, we see that you are extending God's salvation to the ends of the earth. And we know that mission isn't done yet. We know that's the mission you've called us into. I lift up our brothers and sisters around the globe right now who likewise are worshiping you with us today. Our brothers and sisters who are laboring to bring this good news where it's never been before. Jesus Christ, you have already fulfilled so much and there is yet so much that we long for from you. You taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that is our prayer this morning. Would you be exalted as we worship you now? Amen.